get into the topic of today. We're going to be talking about fasting today. Fasting. Um, Historically, I haven't been very good at fasting. I remember my first experiences with fasting were a little bit after I got saved and I was in college at Nazareth College of Rochester, New York. It was a Catholic college. That's part of the reason I went there. At that time, I was Roman Catholic, and so I went to Nazareth College, and I got saved in my first semester. And sometime after that, they had some times of fasting. They would do it from time to time at the church. And what they would do was you would not eat any of the meals from your meal plan. I had a full meal plan, so breakfast, lunch, dinner. You would skip that, and other people would skip that. And if you skipped your meals, they saved money, and they sent the money to help poor folks in the city of Rochester, New York. It was a great thing. And so this was my first experience, really, with fasting. And so I would fast, but I was so holy, it wasn't enough for me just to skip my meals. But I said, I am not going to eat anything at all today. It will be a Dorito-less day in the name of Jesus. That's hard for college students. Uh, So I would go the whole day without eating anything. I said, I'm not going to drink anything but water. I would drink a little water, and I made it through the day. And I thought, man, I am one pretty holy dude. But here's one of the things I would do, because we did this from time to time. I, I, I developed a practice, and sometime around 11.30 at night, uh, maybe a little bit closer to midnight, I would call my favorite pizza place and order a large pepperoni pizza. Now, I knew if I ordered it at that time, it would come somewhere around midnight. But again, I told you guys, I'm a holy, holy dude. So I was so holy, if it came at five minutes before midnight, I would say, I will not touch that thing until midnight. And then I'll make sure there's no one else in my room. The door is locked. It's me and a pepperoni pizza, and I'm good. And I would knock out that large pepperoni pizza. Absolutely, I would knock that thing out. Now, somehow I think maybe I missed the point of biblical fasting. You think so? Lord, have mercy on my soul. Let me give you a quote from Richard Foster, who wrote a book some years ago called The Celebration of Discipline. And he talks about different Christian disciplines, and one of them is fasting. He says, it's sobering to realize that the very first statement that Jesus made about fasting dealt with the question of motive. We're going to look at that today in Matthew 6. To use good things to our own ends is always a sign, Foster says, of false religion. How easy it is to take something like fasting and try to use it to get God to do what you want. At times... There is such stress upon the blessings and the benefits of fasting. I've read articles and books on that, the blessings of fasting. But he says at times there's so much of a stress on that that we would be tempted to believe that with a little fast we could have the world, including God, eating out of our hands. That's Richard Foster from The Celebration of Discipline. I want us to stand together as we read God's Word. And what we're going to do today is we're going to, our main passage here is Matthew 6, 16 through 18, but 
if we're really going to understand it in its context, we need to read a few other verses. So I have those up on the board. We'll start at verse 1, and we'll read verse 1 and part of verse 2. Then we'll skip down to verse 5, then to verse 16. We'll also read verse 33 at the end. But let us start by reading God's word together. Let's read. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites. Now let's skip to verse 5. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. For they love to pray, standing in the synagogues, and on the street corners to be seen by others. Now, verse 16. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now, verse 33. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. The title today is Fasting for the Glory of God. Let me pray. Father God, I pray that all of us together here would be impacted by your word and by your Holy Spirit today. Lord, speak to us. We need to hear you. If there's any part in our minds and our hearts that we're distracted or taken away, Lord God, we pray against the work of Satan and the work of our own flesh to distract us in these coming minutes. Be with us. Teach us. We glorify your name in all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Fasting to the glory of God. We're actually going to look at two passages today. We'll look at the Matthew uh, 6, 16 through 18 in particular. We're also going to look at a passage in Isaiah chapter 58. But let's start with the Matthew passage. Jesus is here in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount, and he's really talking in these verses not about the purpose of fasting, but about the practice of fasting. So in these verses, he's dealing with the practice of fasting for disciples. And there's two main things that Jesus is communicating in these verses. The first is that fasting should be done in secret, right? If you look at verses 16 through 18, he, he says that this is actually not unto itself, but it's a part of the passage we read as a whole. So it's a three, threefold condemnation that Jesus gives for doing your religious things so that you'll be seen by other people, so that you'll get street cred from other people watching you. So he says, don't give in such a way that other people see you. Don't pray in order to appear religious so that people will, will give you your kudos. And he says, don't 
fast in such a way that everybody can see your fasting and say, man, that's one holy dude until you get that pizza at midnight, right? So he's telling us that it's very easy for us to be hypocrites in what we do. It's easy for that to happen. And so he is warning us about this. And this is a serious warning to all of us because it's easy to slip into doing religious things, even fasting, in order to be seen by others. Look at verse 16. He says, when you fast, don't look somber as the hypocrites do. So even a somber look, like I'm going to go around in a certain way just so that people will notice, wow, what's what's wrong with you today? Uh, Larry, Pastor Larry, what's going on? Well, you know, <laughs> praise be to God. I'm fasting today. That is my regular habit on Tuesdays through Thursdays. Uh, and I do it as unto the Lord. So I just want you to know, I said, don't even look different. Don't look somber. And then in verse 17, he gets real, real practical here. He says, when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face. In other words, these were normal hygiene practices in the first century. And he said, take care of yourself. Don't look like a mess on purpose. So that people will say, oh my goodness, he must be fasting. She must be fasting. No, take care of yourself. Don't look a mess so that you draw attention to yourself. It's easy for us to do when we fast. But secondly, not only is fasting uh, something that should be done in secret, but also in these verses we see that fasting should be a regular part of the life of disciples of Jesus Christ. How do we see that? Look at verse 16. The first thing that Jesus says about fasting is when you fast. He doesn't say if you someday decide to fast, but there is an assumption that you will fast when you fast. Verse 17, at the beginning of that verse, he says, but when you fast. So there's an assumption here that fasting is a normal part of the life of a disciple. We see that in many places in Scripture and in a particular way in the New Testament. Jesus, we remember, fasted for 40 days and 40 nights after he was uh, baptized and filled uh, by the Holy Spirit. He fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. It was a common practice of Jews in Jesus' day to fast twice a week. We see that in Luke chapter 18, verse 12. We see in the book of Acts a number of times where the disciples fast. We see that in Acts 13 and 14, as they are seeing who it is that they should set apart for missionary service, they fast and pray and set apart uh, Paul and Barnabas for the work of missions. And even in the early church, we see documents that tell us that it was the normal practice of the Christian people, the disciples of Jesus, even from the first and second century to fast sometimes twice a week. That was a normal practice. And so we know that fasting was something that happened often and was simply a part of what it meant to be a disciple of Christ. And so for us, that begs a question, doesn't it? Is fasting a practice that you regularly partake in? We've done some fasts here 
since September. A few times we fasted first for a particular day of the week. We fasted for a week uh, at a time in January with different forms of fasting. But is it a normal part of your own walk with Jesus? And the scripture would, would tell us that it actually should be. But this scripture, the passage that we're looking at, doesn't tell us a lot about the purposes of fasting. And that's why I want us to look at Isaiah 58. So if you've got your Bible, you can turn to Isaiah 58. And we want to look at that. We'll also have that up on the board in a moment. But there's two types of fasting that are going on in Isaiah 58. The first kind is what I call manipulation fasting. Now that's kind of a funny name but we'll probably all recognize it at some point as we talk about it. And the second is true fasting or fasting to the glory of God, which is what we would want to do. But we need to see how easy it is for us to convince ourselves we're doing something to the glory of God, and yet it is really revolving around ourselves. And so we'll look at that. We're going to look at two main characteristics, first of all, in Isaiah 58, of manipulation fasting. Two uh, primary characteristics. The first one is externalism. It is the idea that by something that we do externally, God is going to be motivated and manipulated to give us something. And so as Isaiah writes here in these verses, he is, first of all, exposing empty externalism. So let's Let me read through this passage and just kind of talk through it. He says, shout aloud, do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. He says, declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. Verse 2, he says, for day after day they seek me out. And now look at this phrase. He says, they seem eager to know my way. He goes on, as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. So he's saying they seem like they want to know my ways as if they're not walking in consistent rebellion against me. And then he says in the middle of that verse, towards the end of that verse, they ask me for just decisions. And again, they seem eager for God to come near them. So what he's saying here is there's this pretense of fasting. They're walking in rebellion. They're walking in sin. And yet they're going to fast in such a way that they seem eager to hear the voice of the Lord. They seem eager to know the ways of God. That's what they seem. And then later he says in verse 5, or I'm sorry, in verse 3, he says, The people are saying, why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it. This is God's people talking. Then he says, why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? I hope you can see in these verses that there's something going on with the jacked up motivations of God's people here in order to manipulate and get something from God through their fasting. They're treating God like someone on the block that you're trying to get something from. Like if if I give you a little something, something here, 
I'm going to get a little something, something back from you. Or as the old saying goes, if I scratch your back, you'll scratch mine. But listen, I need to tell you something. God doesn't need your back scratcher. You don't have a back scratcher big enough or good enough to scratch God's back. He doesn't need his back scratched by you. God doesn't need anything from any one of us. He loves us. He wants us to draw near to him. But it is not as if we give him something and now there's a quid pro quo. God, I've done this for you. You need to do this for me. But that's exactly what's going on in verse 3. The people are throwing a religious hissy fit in this verse. He says, what, they say, why have we fasted and you've not seen it? Like, God, we are here fasting. You should have done something by now. You should have made something move. You should have made something change in my life. Look, the second part, he says, we've humbled ourselves and you haven't even noticed? God, you're not doing your part of the bargain. It's like we signed this covenant. If I do this, God, you've got to make this change. You've got to do this other thing over here. Why haven't you done it? And they're throwing this religious hissy fit. Now, let's get it right down into our own lives. Because some of you and some of me have also thrown religious hissy fits at times. We thought, God, look, I've been doing so good. I have been in my word. And God said, whose word? It's actually my word. But I've been in the word. I've been coming to church. I've been three weeks in a row, God. You ought to notice that. I've been putting money in the offering. I used to not do it, but I've been faithful. Some of you, I've been tithing. I gave over my tithe. I have been doing all of these things, God, and I'm fasting on top of it? This should have changed by now. Now, no one knows what I'm talking about, but I know what I'm talking about. The way it is when we're like, God, how come this hasn't changed yet? It should have changed by now. You should have moved by now. We think, what we think when we do that is a revelation of how faithful we are. I've done all these things. Is actually a revelation of our faithlessness. We think that we're laying out a case before God of how faithful I've been, but actually what God hears is a person who doesn't have faith at all. We have disobedience. We have unbelief. Listen to this, folks. When God moves slowly, I don't know about you, but most times in my life, God has not gotten on the L train. That's the Larry train. He hasn't gotten on the L train to say, I need to do this by this time, because Larry said, when God moves slowly, he often reveals to us the true nature of our hearts. When God moves slowly, he reveals to us the true nature of our hearts. When we have a religious fit, we act as if we have this contract with God. So I want to tell, I want you to tell someone next to you, tell them God isn't interested in fitting in to your box. Tell someone, tell each other, God isn't interested in fitting in to your box. Can't manipulate God. 
One commentator used these words to talk about this verse. He says, what did a little abstinence matter if they could retain their basic lifestyle of disobedient rebellion against the moral demands of God? Isn't that powerful? I'm going to fast, but I'm not really going to change my life. What does that matter, he says. And then he says, such empty externalism reappears in every age and culture. Listen, we're not immune to this same thing. It's alive and well with us. The prophet Isaiah revealed it to the people of Israel 700 years before Christ came, but he's revealing it to us as well. God is never impressed by your external actions in such a way that you can manipulate him to action. Amen? So here's a homework assignment I want to give you. It's simply this. Think of the last time. Now, some of you are like, I've never been mad at God. Okay, all right. I guess I'll believe you. But some of you know you've been mad at God sometimes. If that's you, then think of the last time that you were angry at God when he didn't do what you wanted him to do. First of all, you've got to think of that. Now, on top of that, now here's where you need to go. You need to go somewhere with it. What was going on in your soul that caused that anger? So take some time to think through that. Why was I so angry at God? For some of you, that might have been 10 years ago. For others, it might have been 10 seconds ago. But I want you to think through that. So that's the first part of this idea of manipulation fasting. But there's a second part of it that we see from the middle of verse 3 through the end of verse 5. And I want to just, again, read through these verses, starting at verse 3, in the middle of verse 3 in Isaiah 58. He says, Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please. Now what I want to talk about this second point is ending extravagant self-exaltation. Because what we see here is that Fasting becomes about me. I get replaced in the center instead of Jesus Christ, instead of the Lord. And so he says in that verse again, yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please. Now that is a, that is the opposite of what fasting is about, right? Fasting is about denying yourself of something. But what he says is for you, Israelite people, when you're fasting, you do whatever you please. Whatever you darn well please. I'll say that in the nicest way I can. You do it whatever you please. And look what he says. And exploit all your workers. You exploit your workers. Listen, on the day of fasting, a a landowner or a wealthy person would cease from labor and work because they're fasting and praying and seeking God. But what he says here to those who are wealthy in the land, you fast and you do whatever you please, You don't work, but what you do is you ride your employees, you ride those who are poor and who work from you to do even more on that day so that you don't suffer any loss from it. As a matter of fact, it becomes a day of greater gain for you even though you were fasting. You exploit the poor. You make your workers work harder on that day. And then he says, verse 4, Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. Look, you're at the end of the day, you fasted, 
you're hungry, you're a little irritable. He says, you just go with that irritability. Has anyone ever fasted and by the end of the day, you don't know why you've been fasting and praying, but you're just kind of mad at somebody, anybody. You know, I just, I don't know, maybe it's just me. I've been at the end of a day of fasting and could not wait to brush my teeth because I was looking forward to the taste of that toothpaste. Oh, that's going to be so good. Let me brush my teeth 12 times because I'm fasting today. But he, what he's saying here is this idea, you're angry, you're irritable, and you just let it all out. You do as you please on the day that you are fasting. You are about self-exaltation, not about God-exaltation. Look what he says again uh, in the middle of verse 4. He says, you cannot fast as you do today. And expect your voice to be heard on high. What's God saying? He's saying, I am not listening to you. Your prayers are going to bounce off the wall or off the ceiling. I'm not listening to you when you're making yourself the center instead of me. I'm not listening. Then he goes on to say, you cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard. Verse 5 Is this the kind of fast I've chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves. Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? Now, many of the things he talked about, humbling yourself, sackcloth and ashes, we see that over and over again in the Scripture as ways of actually uh, declaring that we are humbling ourselves before God. But in this context, he's saying, you're doing that to appear a certain way, to manipulate me. That's not where your heart is at. Listen, we can try to fake God out a million different ways externally, but God is always going to get right back to our hearts. Disconnected from God, our minds are idol-making factories. And we need to remember this, uh, that our enemy, the devil, he can't create anything. He's not a creator. He simply perverts the good things that God has given us. I want you to listen to this. Corrupted worship, in many ways, is the pinnacle of demonic expression. Corrupted worship in many ways, is the very pinnacle of demonic expression because when we corrupt worship, we are using God and the things of God actually to run from God and to make ourselves God when we corrupt our worship. Listen, this happened over and over again with the people of Israel, those who were the chosen of God, those who were the apple of his eye, those whom he took out of slavery in Egypt and brought into the promised land. When they get into the promised land, they begin to follow the practices of the people of the land, the Canaanites. And one of the things that the Canaanites did in their worship because they wanted the land to be fertile and they wanted uh, fertility in their families, they had a form of what was called temple prostitution. Men and women who prostituted themselves uh, before their temples in quote-unquote worship to God, and God saw this as an abomination. But within 
two generations of David, we see the same thing happening in Israel. Look at 1 Kings chapter 14, starting at verse 23. He says, For they also built for themselves high places and pillars, and asherim on every high hill and under every green tree. And there were also male cult prostitutes in the land. They did according to all the abominations of the nations, abominations of the nations that the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. In other words, the people of Israel, the Israelites, fell into the same cultural practices of the cultures and the peoples around them. Trying to keep up with the Canaanites, they lost the one meaningful distinction that set them apart as the people of God. My fear is that in many ways we do the same thing today. Not keeping up with the Canaanites, but we're trying to keep up with the Joneses or somebody else. In our yearning to be relevant, in our desire to be accepted, and in our fever to fit in we lose our distinction as the people of God. When we live, when we walk, when we talk, when we spend, and when we do things in the same way that people that make no pretense of knowing Jesus Christ do, we walk, talk, spend, go places, don't go other places. We do it the same way non-believers do. When we're doing that, we're prostituting the worship of the true God. When you allow self-exaltation to replace Christ's exaltation, you're prostituting the worship of God. Let me put it this way. When you and I put self in the middle of our worship or fasting, we're prostituting God's perpetual purpose and we're supporting Satan's shrewd scam. What is his scam? His scam is to make it look like the real thing, but to lead you away from the one true God. The enemy is all about that. That's the essence of manipulation fasting. So let's go on to this last part and look at what true fasting is, or fasting for the glory of God. Look at verse 6. And And as we get into this, here's the main, the first point of this true fast, fasting for the glory of God, is that it is centered on aligning with God's heart for justice. God cares about justice. Look at verse 6. He says, is not this the kind of fasting I've chosen? To loose the chains of injustice. The first thing he talks about with the true fast or fast to the glory of God is to loose the chains of injustice. That same word most often in the Hebrew Bible is translated as wickedness. Wickedness is injustice. Injustice is wickedness. He goes on to say, and to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free. Now, the rest of what he's going to say in verse 6 And seven are going to tell us what it means to set the oppressed free. Who are the oppressed? That word oppressed simply means crushed. Those who are crushed in spirit. Those who may be crushed financially. Those who have been crushed 
by society in whatever ways. Those who are crushed, he said, this is what the true fast is about. It's about setting the oppressed free and to break every yoke. Verse 7, he says, is it not to share your food with the hungry? I love the fact that today happened to be our Walk Forward Sunday and people are bringing up things today uh, for our food pantry. And most of you aren't around here a lot during the week, but if you were, you would see that not only on weekends, but during the week, people somewhat randomly come in who need real help, and they get real help. It's one thing to say, I'm going to pray for you, brother, but it's something else to have some peanut butter and jelly and some bread and some beans and some other things that they can fill their stomachs with. I thank God for that ministry here. I thank God that we're looking at ways to take care of the physical needs of people. Celebrate recovery is a way to deal with some of the other issues that people have. We're looking at how can we break yokes? How can we help people live? How can we get people to the next day and love them in Jesus' name? But we can always do more of that. Look at this next part. This really struck me even this morning as I was reading it. He said, and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter. And to provide the poor wanderer with shelter. That is a person who is oppressed, who is struggling, is poor, does not have a place to, re- to provide them with shelter. I could not help but think of what's going on on the southern border of our nation. And there are poor wanderers, some who have walked a thousand miles or more. And it says to provide for the poor wanderer a shelter, not a prison, not a, a, not, not a, a place with a gate that, to put them in and to separate their families, but to provide for those who are struggling and poor and need a place. And the church of Jesus Christ needs to be a part of that answer. I don't know what that means for new life, but as I looked at this today, my heart was stirred by that reality. When we fast, when we set our lives apart, not for our good, but for the glory of God, we care about those who are least and lost and struggling all around us. Listen, we live in the city, the, 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 the poorest big city in the United States. There are more people under the poverty line in terms of percentage in Philadelphia than any other large city. And so we in this city need to be a part of that solution. I thank God for the ways that we are, but my mind is stirred to say, how else can we help even more? Then he says, and when you see the naked, to clothe them. And do not turn away from your own flesh and blood. Listen. The religious Pharisees in Jesus' day would get out of even things that they would do for their own family saying, well, we've fasted and that's been given over to God. So for my parents, as an adult child, I have no nothing for you because I've given that to the Lord. He said, no, that's not a true fast. You care for your household. You care for the people around you. Don't get super spiritual on me now. Let's care for the people that God has put in our lives. I love the practicality of the word of God. It tells us what salvation 
is about, what conversion is about, what fasting is about, what it means to live for our God. Living for the Lord or being saved or being a disciple is not simply about agreeing with a set of doctrines that gets us off the hook for eternal punishment and gives us a free pass to heaven. That's never been what it's about. Jesus said in John chapter 3, it's about being born again or born from above. It makes you a new person. Ezekiel 36 said, I'll give you a new heart. I'll give you a new spirit. In, in the 8th chapter of Romans, Paul says it this way in, in verse 9. Basically what he's saying to us there is, if you are a Christian, I give you my Holy Spirit to empower you to live for me. You're a different type of person. Not a person who has checked off a list. Yeah, I believe that, I believe that, I believe that, I believe that, I'm good. No. A Christian is a person that God has his hands on. And is changing us and making us more and more into his image and likeness. A true fast. A God-honoring fast moves our hearts more and more towards the heart of the Father. We become aligned with Him. And the desired end of the true fast has less to do with a change in your circumstances and more to do with the alignment of your heart. Amen? Last point here. Fasting for the glory of God. Not only does that mean that we're centered on aligning with God's heart for justice, but it also means that we're concentrated on giving yourself away. You're concentrated on giving yourself away. Look here, starting in the middle of verse 9. He says, If you do away with the yoke of oppression, what he says next, with the pointing finger, Pointing finger. Malicious talk. What is he talking about? He's talking about the poor. He's talking about the oppressed. He's talking about the marginalized. He says you need to do away with this pointing finger. This malicious talk. He says I know why you're struggling. I know what your problem is. He says there's pointing finger, there's malicious talk. There is blaming the victim for the place that they're in. Thank God for the Me Too movement that's swept our country and is sweeping other parts of the world because what's happened historically is that victims have been blamed. You shouldn't have been there. You shouldn't have worn that. You shouldn't have done that. And victims have been blamed. But now they're standing up and saying, oh no, oh no, I'm not the perpetrator here. There is a perpetrator who needs to be named and brought to justice. But this happens not only in gender issues and in in sexual assault, but this happens all the time when people are looking at oppressed minorities and marginalized people and we're saying, it's because you are X, Y, or Z. I don't even want to say it. It's because you put yourself into this situation without ever trying to put yourself into the shoes of that person, into that family history, into that lineage, into all the things that bring us to where we're at right now. He says, do away with this pointing 
finger and malicious talk. And he says, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed. I just want to look at that, that terminology. You spend yourself. See, this is what fasting in, in a life for the Lord is. It's about giving yourself away, spending yourself for the benefit of other people. Paul uses a similar phrase in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He says, I will gladly spend and be spent for your sakes. Paul says, I'll take whatever I've got financially, materially, and my own time and my own life. I give it away for your sakes. This is the true spirit of fasting. We do it for the sake of the glory of God. And here is the crazy thing about this. When we do this, when we give ourselves away to the glory of God, you can never outgive God. Amen? This is the upside-down reality of the kingdom of God. When you give yourself away, God then invests himself in you. Look at verses 10 and 11 here. He says, If you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden like a spring whose waters never fail. What is that? That's the hand of God's blessing upon his people. Now, some are going to say, man, that sounds like prosperity gospel. I'm going to say, no, that's not prosperity gospel. That's just plain old Bible, y'all. That is Bible. You cannot outgive a good and infinite God. But the other side of that, is that you can't say exactly how he's going to bless you. You can't say exactly when he's going to bless you, what that's going to look like. That may not look like financial wealth to, to you. That may not look like you want it to look. But when you have eyes to see and to believe this God, when you give your heart to him in fasting and prayer, you will see the glory of God. You will be encouraged by God. You will know that although my circumstances haven't changed, my God is with me. You'll know it. You'll know it. A true fast or fasting to the glory of God is a setup for a life that makes an impact on the world for Jesus Christ. Fasting to the glory of God empowers a greater love for God and for others and teaches disciples to depend more fully on God. Let me close. Three takeaways on fasting. Number one, fasting is a normal part of Christian practice. It's not the icing on the cake. It's a part of the cake. It's some of the sugar and some of the flour. It's right in there, y'all. Number two, fasting enables us to see God and understand God more clearly. Fasting and prayer almost always go together. So we have a time that we set apart where we say no to some of our physical or fleshly or other needs. We can fast in different ways. 
But we do that to seek the Lord, and the Lord wants to talk to you. Many times when we do that, we can hear God more clearly. And then thirdly, the focus of fasting is knowing God and blessing others. And I could add to that, especially those who are oppressed. Especially those who are oppressed. As I close today, I'm not going to give you a day and time for fasting at New Life Church. I'm not going to declare a time of fasting as a church. We've done that several times over the last few months. But what I'm going to do today instead is to challenge you about your own personal practice of fasting. I'm going to challenge you to seek the Lord about what he may have you to do in terms of fasting yourself. We will have times when we fast together as a church. That will be a part of what we do normally in the church. My question today and my challenge today is what does that look like in your personal life? I'm praying that we'll become a church where prayer and fasting are like breathing in and out. It's what we do. It's who we are. It's a part of who we are as the people of God. When we do that, wash your face. (laughs) Comb your hair. And for the sake of the Lord, please put on deodorant. You're not doing it to impress anybody but we do it for the audience of one, our good, great, and mighty God. Let me pray. Father God, today we thank you for your word and for your truth. We ask, Lord God, that you would help us as your people. Lord, you know there's so many ways we get caught up in ourselves. We want to dictate the terms of the agreement with the God who created, sustains, and redeems the universe. How foolish is that? How crazy is that? But Lord, you are good, and for some reason that can only be found in your nature as a God of love, you call us your friends. So Lord, I pray for everyone under the sound of my voice everyone who will hear this, Lord God, in any way, that, Lord, we may truly seek your face about spiritual practices in our lives to undertake them in such a way that the name of Jesus gets more and more.